It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Truly a blockbuster week. Incredible, right? <laughs> I just feel like this week has been nothing but breaking news, shocking news, wild news. And the thing is, it's only like breaking, shocking, and wild to those of us who like live and breathe this sort of thing. To other people, it's just like, okay. The other night I get home, Julie's watching TV. I get home and she's like, you know, what's going on? And I told her like, haven't you heard the news? Didn't you hear the news? What's happening down in Cumberland County? She's like, yeah, you mentioned that before you left for work this morning. But no, I don't know what's going on. But We're going to get into it today. We started off the week, which I thought was big news. We heard from the courts. It's almost hard to think that that was this week on Monday when the (laughs) Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS denied the appeal by the Republican lawmakers here about the congressional map. But some are saying, well, it just had to do with timing, right? We got to get on with the election. Yeah, it was expected that they were going to reject that appeal because of the timing. They had rejected, I think, the Alabama appeal because filing had already begun. And in this case, filing had already ended. So it would have kind of uprooted those congressional campaigns. So for this election only, the congressional map drawn by the special masters stands. We'll be back at it next year. Senator Jeff Jackson, for instance, down in the 14th district is running for Congress, but he might not want to um, get too used to that seat. Chances are he's going to see a redraw of that district and other districts. Because filing ended on Friday, we kind of saw how things were going to shake out, how many people were running without opposition, how many primaries there were going to be. And it's really interesting to look at those numbers and see how the legislature will change next year. And this is a combination, right, of double bunking. Of course, some legislators have said that they're not running again. For example, Representative Billy Richardson, who's been on the podcast, he's not running. But I heard at the end of the day, we could expect a 20% turnover in the Senate, and we're going to see a 15% turnover in the House. And that might not seem like a big number to, to many, but if you look at elections, usually you're up in the 90 to 95% retention rate in elections. This is the part of our podcast called Let's Get Fiscal, and we're going to talk about the numbers. (laughs) So in the Senate, 10 people are guaranteed not to come back. Yeah. And that's 10 out of 50. You can do that math on your own. Can you do it on your own? No, I'm I'm relying on you. (laughs) It's early on a Thursday morning to be doing math. Oh, Poor Brian. And over on the House side, 17 out of the 120 people are guaranteed not to come back. When they return in May for the short session, that's going to be an awkward reunion because you're going to have some folks with some hurt feelings who have lost primaries. Also, just a couple other numbers. Over on the Senate side, there are 10 folks who are unopposed, and out of those 10, nine are Republicans, and that includes Senate Leader Phil Berger and one Democrat. Who is Senator Mushtaba Muhammad, 
uh, he is unopposed. On the House side, we've got a lot of folks that won their election when the, when filing ended. Speaker Tim Moore, Representative George Cleveland, Republican down in Onslow County, Majority Leader John Bell, he's unopposed. The Democrats left many seats without a candidate. And, you know, you might think, why do you take on a Phil Berger? Why do you take on a Speaker Moore? But if for any other reason you make Senator Berger put out a yard sign, spend Spend money, money. spend some time in his district, I think a lot of this leads into it's really not going to be a good election for the Democrats. But interestingly enough, they are playing in their own primaries. Mm -hmm. And we saw that play out this week in Cumberland County. Senator Kirk Devier, who has been on the podcast, drew two primary opponents. Former city councilwoman Val Applewhite declared that she is running. And then there was another candidate that filed. He is a uh, Democrat. So on Tuesday morning, I saw a tweet from Travis Fain saying that he had asked Governor Cooper and Morgan Jackson, Governor Cooper's strategist, on Friday, if they had asked Apple White to get into the race, they both said no. And then later that day, we heard that morning, Tuesday morning, Apple White's campaign put out a statement that Governor Cooper had endorsed her. There's a chance that maybe he did not ask her to get in, but he certainly is backing her candidacy. That sent shockwaves through <laughs> NC poll. Twitter was full of it all day and really all week about this news because it really is not common. In fact, it is the exception to the case that usually the parties do not get involved in primaries. But certainly, uh, Governor Roy Cooper has some dissatisfaction with Senator Kirk Devier. Senator Devier was involved in some of the budget negotiations. In fact, Many have credited him with keeping the Republicans in session so that they can get a final budget. But the budget did not reflect Governor Roy Cooper's priorities, which was mainly raising teacher pay and Medicaid expansion. However, I will note that there is that Medicaid expansion working group that is meeting, and it seems like something is going to happen this year. I think that's what you've heard from both of the chambers. Yeah, and I think a lot of folks credit Senator Devier with getting that working group included in the budget. This brings up an interesting debate. You can see the point of Governor Cooper. He is the leader of the party. He had his priorities. He feels that some Democrats. And by the way, Senator Devier was not the only one at the table. There was Senator Paul Lowe, Senator Ben Clark, Senator Don Davis over on the Senate side. Davis and Clark are running for Congress, so we're not touching them. Paul Lowe somehow came out unfettered, but Devier is in the sights of Governor Cooper. Accountability has always been a part of politics. We saw it earlier this session when Speaker Moore and Representative Julia Howard got into a dust-up, and then she lost her House Finance Chairmanship. So kind of retribution, if you will, is a part of politics. But we've never really seen it bleed into something like an election, where you're saying, I want to take out the current incumbent, and we want to have this former councilwoman take his place. I mean, I think you've probably seen it before, but... 
maybe not so boldly stated. Yeah. It's up to you to decide, do you have to do this to keep your caucus in line? That is a valid case. We see it all the time. But they are running incredible risk here in trying to take out Senator Devier because waiting in the wings for for whoever comes out of this primary is a former four-term senator with a lot of money. He's a home builder. He is very entrenched in Cumberland County. Wesley Meredith is waiting in the wings for whoever comes out. Senator Devier has beat Senator Meredith twice. Some think that if Devier does not come out, you may lose that seat to the Republicans. So this is a risk for the governor. What other risks do you see? I think there is a perception out there that the Democratic Party may not be the big tent party that it used to be. So if we go back in time 20 years ago, you had Democrats that were all over the political map from conservative to liberal. This does send a message, I think, to candidates out there, people who are considering running under the Democratic banner, that if you are a deal maker and and try to bring resources into your district, as Senator Devier did, we're talking $400 million he brought to Cumberland County. If you're willing to go against the party, then there will be this very public backlash. And I think this could have some long-term ramifications as Democrats are trying to win rural North Carolina back. If you look where Democrats did not recruit candidates this year, it's in the rural areas. They couldn't even get someone to sign up. And I don't know that this is going to help them in two years or four years, because let's just say you bring back an old Representative Bill Owens or Senator David Hoyle. These are two Democrats that David Hoyle's from Lincoln County. Bill Owens was from up northeastern North Carolina. Very conservative. I don't know if you're ever going to get guys like that back into the General Assembly when they're expected to toe the party line all the time because Democrats were known, again, at one time for being a big, big tent party. And that seems to be changing. It's also the antithesis of what we talk about on this podcast. As far as doing politics better, working across the aisle. It reminds me of that country song, We All Want to Go to Heaven, Just Not Right Now. And it's kind of like, yeah, we all want to do politics better. Just don't make us do politics better. (laughs) Make the other side. But I, I totally get Governor Cooper's position here that he wanted what he wanted. But we really need to remind listeners, we hadn't had a budget since 2018. We went through 2019, went through 2020, 21, and the, the prior two years, the Republicans just walked away from the table and we were doing these mini budgets. And I think Senator Devier and Senator Davis, Senator Lowe, Senator Clark, and then a few, Billy Richardson over in the House, those Democrats got together and said, look. Farkas. Yeah, Representative Farkas. We got to make something happen, guys, because we can't afford, our districts can't afford for Senator Berger and Speaker Moore to walk away from the table. I don't know what the answer is here. You certainly can see both sides. I I respect that. But yeah, it it was just a moment this week, and we are going to hear about it for the next couple months. We're recording on Thursday morning, and yesterday the Senate took up the veto override of the Free the Smiles Act, which is about letting parents 
opt out of their students wearing masks at school. So the Senate came back and they, when they had voted on this originally, they had the votes to override. So everyone had their eyes on this vote yesterday. However, you have heard the narrative that 110 of the 115 LEAs have voted to drop their mask mandates at schools. So it almost seems obsolete. However, the vote comes up and all of the Democrats voted against the override. Yeah, my understanding is the votes weren't there. There were a few absences yesterday, Mm -hmm. Uh, Democrats and Republicans for that matter. The votes weren't there, and I think some that were in favor of the mass said, look, (laughs) I'm not going to just take a vote here and, and further anger Democrats or the governor or whoever. There was a parliamentary procedure yesterday at the end of the vote, so it's not necessarily dead. Can you talk about what happened? Senate Rules Chair, right after that vote happened, Senate Rules Chair Bill Rabin stood up and made a motion to reconsider. And for that motion to reconsider, you have to be on the side that won the previous vote. So he made that motion to reconsider and then moved the bill back to rules. They're coming back in May, and we're talking after primaries. Maybe there will be some freedom to bring that bill back once they count the votes. And we could see this again. There is that possibility. I think Senator Berger said last night he doesn't foresee that happening, but there is a possibility, yes. Yeah, anything's possible in politics if this week has taught us anything. Also, this week, finally, this is the one where there is an adjournment. And as a general reminder, we are still in the 2021 long session. And yesterday, the Senate voted on that adjournment. It posted a few days ago. So they're going to come back for April 4th through 6th and then May 4th through 6th and then come back for the short session May 18th. And as you've stated a few times, that's the day after the primary. And both Senator Rabin and Senator Berger said, we don't expect anything to happen in those two small sessions. We'll, We'll gavel in and gavel out. One thing that was notable yesterday when Senator Rabin was explaining the adjournment resolution is that he announced to legislators and lobbyists out there that the bill filing deadlines are prior to when they start the short session in earnest, May 17th. So if you are working on legislation for this short session, you better start working now because by the time they come in in May, it'll be too late to file your bill. Another newsy thing that happened yesterday afternoon, pretty much every media outlet reported that Congressman Madison Cawthorn was pulled over in Cleveland County on March 3rd, I believe. So it took a couple days for that news to break. And he is due in court. He's going like 89 in a 65 zone which is enough to get your license pulled on the spot. Got pulled in Cleveland County. On a revoked license. On a revoked license. I wonder if there's a good lawyer he could call in Cleveland County. Maybe Speaker Tim Moore. Do you steal that joke from Twitter? Stole it from Twitter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I think he does have three different citations that are happening. One in Buncombe, one in Polk, and one in Cleveland County. So maybe hire a driver with all that money you raise. Another example of a not a good look for (laughs) Congressman Gawthorne. 
All right, we had a lot of transition news this week. Yes, so a couple different people. One is Bradford Sneeden, who was the legislative liaison for Attorney General Josh Stein. He has left the AG's office and now is in charge of government affairs at Moore and Van Allen. Congratulations to him. And then we heard that Representative Allison Dahl's legislative assistant, Ann Evangelista, is leaving. Yes, she's going over, staying within the General Assembly and going over to the House Democratic GovOps team. As you'll recall from previous podcasts, PED, that's the Program Evaluation Division, was dismantled Mm -hmm. about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And then they have built up on both the House and the Senate side majority teams and minority teams for folks who are going to do that research. And Anne is on the House side's Democratic minority GovOps team. So congrats to her. This week, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Senator Brent Jackson. He is the senior budget writer in the Senate. He lives in Sampson County, and we had a great discussion. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Brent Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. To kick us off, tell us about your district. Where is it? What do you think makes your district special? Well, I I tell everyone it's, you know, I I represent the majority of God's country. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's special. But uh, my current district is Sampson County, which is my home, Duplin County, and a large portion of the geography of Johnston County. My new district going in is actually Duplin County, Sampson County, Bladen County, Pender County, and Jones County. Oh, wow. So I've got three whole new counties, and, and I was picking at my colleagues not to count on any contributions to the caucus from me because I was going to need a helicopter to cover it. <laughs> so, so I go from nearly, because uh, I'm in the western part of Sampson, which is near, I'm 20 miles to Fayetteville, 20 miles to Clinton, and uh, it's my district goes all the way to the South Topsail Beach, wow. so which is two and a half hours for me. So, wow. wow! But I'm looking forward to getting. I know a lot of good people down that way, so I'm looking forward to it. It's a good district. You're a native of the area. You grew I, up in Sampson County. I'm right where I was. Other than the time I spent being born in the hospital, I'm on the same piece of property I came home to. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about growing up in Sampson County? <laughs> well, it was a fun time. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we lived on a dirt road at the time. I can remember it being paved. I was probably maybe 10 years old when it finally got paved. But, uh, you know, uh, my parents were both... Uh, you know, working parents. My mother was uh, secretary to the AG at Fort Bragg for yeah. 28 years until she retired. And my dad was a barber by trade. And uh, so he had shops in Fayetteville as well as one at home. And so I, I was always getting haircuts. Uh, so <laughs> after I finally got grown enough that I didn't have to I always listen to dad, I let my hair get way down to my shoulders, believe it or not. Uh-huh. I could use some of that today. Yeah. And, and, and it's a good thing, you know, we're, we're not televising this. So people, you know, radio personalities are 
look much prettier than some on TV. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was a good childhood. Uh, we believed in work, and I was taught worth ethics, uh, you know, and still maintain those today. And, of course, we, you know, our community surrounded was surrounded by the church and what was going on at the church there. And so I'm going to the same church where I, I went as a child. I, it was a good childhood. How did you get into ag and farming? Well, that sort of leads off of what I just said about the worth ethics. Uh, when I, I started working for one of the um, actually African-American farmers in my community, and actually his son now works with us, and uh, they were great people. And, uh, you know, he let me, my first job was 50 cents an hour driving a tractor burning tobacco or har- harvesting tobacco, priming tobacco, depends on where you're from, how you say it. We always said burning tobacco. Mm-hmm. But that sort of led into when I got into later into uh, elementary school, still working on the farms during the summertime. But then as got into high school, working more, you know, and my last year uh, in high school, I was able to take you know half the day off and work on the farms with the neighbors and i just actually i got the the bug bit me there was something about you know working with the soil and and just watching things grow and nourishing them and you know and watching it grow and produce that it really did uh i actually was supposed to go to campbell uh-huh. uh the campbell law school huh. and uh that i decided Early on, my mother was not a happy camper because she was she was well she was college educated, and of course my dad had gone on to other education with his barbering school, but uh, I decided I was going to farm. So, mm-hmm. you know, we started out. When I say we, my wife and I, we had been married maybe six months when I made that decision. Uh, which this was a couple of years after high school that I actually done this, so okay. we didn't come right out of high school and get yeah. married. But we were young newlyweds in our twenty. I think we were both twenty one at the time. Big but financial decision. It was, uh, you know, and but you know, thankfully, uh, we had a lot of support from the farmers I worked with. I would more or less barter labor for equipment to start with that first year, and so we just got started. And I tell this story, you know, and this was in the late seventies, early eighties, which we were going through some of the some of the fuel prices, like we're fixing to see here in just a few <laughs> days. And as well as Great Recession, and then the grain embargo didn't help matters either. So it was it was tough times on the floor on the farm at that time. But we were fortunate, and we you know we per- persevered through it, and uh, that's sort of just how I got into it. I just love watching things grow and working with the soil. And uh, but sadly, the bigger you get and the larger you get the less of that you get to do. Right. You can see it, but you don't actually get to do it. It's, right. it's been a number of years, especially since I've been in the Senate, that I've actually been on a tractor okay. other than to mow grass and, yeah. uh, or just piddle around. So, yeah. you know, but that's sort of my background in the farming. My wife and I started it from scratch. We really did. Talk to us about the transition into growing watermelons. Can you talk a little bit about that transition into the best fruit I think we farmers produce? Absolutely. That's the fruit they say that the angels eat. (laughs) And I believe it. Uh, Actually, it's back to what I was saying about the recession and the grain embargo back in 1981. We literally, my, my wife and I, along with our oldest son, who now runs the operation, we were literally on the brink of starvation, believe it or not, because of just the economy as a whole. And so, you know, we were doing traditional grain crops, uh, 
as you know corn soybeans wheat that type thing but we also had a few hogs we just were not able to make it work so we planted our first watermelon crop in 1981 and so it was to give us some earlier income as well as we had also planted some squash and cucumbers which were a little bit earlier especially the squash and so that gave us some early income to tide us over to the grain crops guardian are you now exclusively watermelon? No, no. We're very, we're very diversified. I still say watermelons and cantaloupes are our mainstay, uh, as has been, but actually sweet potatoes has surpassed them now in okay. sales. You know, we do watermelons, we do strawberries, we do spring and fall broccoli, we do sweet potatoes year-round, uh, but we also do corn, soybeans, wheat, peanuts, cotton, and tobacco. Wow. Wow. So... Tell me about working with your kids on the farm. It was fantastic. Uh, until we lost our middle son, I mean, there was the three of us because Josh was the baby, and you had Rodney's the oldest, Adam in the middle, and then Josh. And Rodney and, and I and Josh and I, I mean, Adam and I, we had our own little – Rodney would handle the production side, and I would handle the sales side. And Adam would handle the shipping and warehouse side of the thing. Mm-hmm. So it, we, it was just fantastic. There's nothing better than working with your family. One of the, you know, the best years of my life was the year of 2000. That was the year before Adam passed away. Mm. But, uh, you know, we just all were working together. I mean, my wife was involved in it. I mean, she would work in the fields or she'd work in the office. Uh, wherever she was needed, that's what she would do. It was really a bonding time. And, and we weren't in... The financial situation we are today, as far as somewhat comfortable, I, I say that very cautiously because you never know from one year to the next how comfortable you're going to be after this harvest. But as I, I've, my um, colleagues in the Senate picked on me years ago when I made the comment, the richest day of a farmer's life is the day he dies. Because, it, <laughs> because, because there's, you know, that's when they inherit it all, but he's not there to enjoy it. But you never know, it doesn't matter how much money you've saved up, you never know if you're going to have a bad year and it's going to take it all. And, right. and I have seen times where it took five to ten years to overcome a couple of bad years. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm trying, I try to be modest in that. But, you know, we were all working for the same goal, trying yeah. to make it work. And, you know, and we were blessed by the good Lord above, no doubt about that. More so, I've been blessed better, much better than I've ever deserved. I'm sorry to hear about your son, Adam. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that must have been very hard. It is. Uh, this uh, coming week will make 21 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, Adam, that was, you know, he was 18 when he passed. Oh, so, no. So. I'm very sorry, Senator. Thank you. It's 2010. You decide you're going to run for the Senate. <laughs> and I have to tell you, I was born in Duplin County. The only Republican I knew in Duplin County was my grandfather, who voted Republican his entire life. But he used to also tell me he was not, he was from Greensboro. So he was kind of an anomaly. I remember Senator Charlie Albertson, the singing senator. Uh, I remember uh, Russell Tucker. He used to represent Duplin County. And I know you have this bigger area, but talk about your decision to run. And then a little bit about like the political shift that we saw happen in that region of the state from those old school Democrats to now, I think, firmly Republicans. Yeah. Well, you know, believe it or not, I tell everyone jokingly, I said, actually, I got, they, you know, when we first got up here, some of my colleagues and other folks were criticizing the Democrats. I said, wait a minute. I said, I was in a four to one district when I ran. I said, so I got a lot of Democratic support. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have always tried to be as nonpartisan as I possibly can at times. Yeah, Senator Alberson was my senator. Yeah. 
uh, you know, and so I knew Charlie, and I had told Charlie at some time because I knew water is a humongous issue to me. Yeah. I mean. To a watermelon. (laughs) Water's in the fruit. Yeah, only 96% of it. That's right. (laughs) And the policies that we put in place in this state on water are very important, and we need to make sure we we justify it. I mean, the the homeowners are the ones that use the water in this state, the majority of it, that and the energy companies. Uh, Farmers use right just a little bit less than 2% of the water in this state, but they were putting in rules you know that were that had detrimental effects so charlie and i had a heated conversation during the drought of 2007 when all this was starting you know they were starting about water rules and and so but we had a a good conversation and it was nothing um, there was no anger between us over it and i'd always considered him a friend and i had decided if should he ever you know not decide not to run again that I would possibly give it, entertain it. And some folks had approached me that thought he might not be going to run again. And so I toyed with it until he made his decision. And when he made it public, uh, I announced my candidacy. And so that was off to the races. I ride through I-40 to get to the beach and I still see the Charlie Albertson Highway yep. there. Is he, is he still around? He is. Okay. Charlie's still doing good and actually just recorded a new song <laughs> late last year. But Charlie, I talked with him uh, back last fall and he, and then later on last year, he sent me that new song. And so okay. he, he's still working. He's still going around doing things. Let's talk about your workflow a little bit. I know that you said that you're not on the tractor, but you have a business at home, a successful business. You are an appropriations chair. You're in leadership. You have all of these things going on. How is it that you decide what's important on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> well, you know, I tell folks that they still will let me mow grass and sign banknotes. I mean, so that's pretty much what I get to do at the farm. But no, actually, Rodney and I will normally meet at least once, maybe twice a week. And it could be on the weekends when I go over to see the grandkids and my grand dog. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, we'll sit down and talk and he'll tell me what's going on. And we still, you know, you know, thankfully, he still asks my opinion. He don't always take my opinion, but he does ask it. And I've always been one because I had watched some other farmers in the area that their dads uh, made all the decisions and didn't allow the the younger generation to make decisions and i had always told myself i would never do that Mm -hmm. because i seen the harm it caused to the younger generation and sort of killed the the spirit of uh, being involved and and the entrepreneurship that comes with that so i give rodney uh reigns early on mm-hmm. in his career and so and he's he's done much better than i ever could have mm-hmm. he, he farms by the numbers i sort of farm by emotion <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and, and, and he's much better at it but we made a great team yeah between the two so we we do talk regularly uh sometimes we talk on a daily basis of course when i'm up here it's by the phone and sometimes we you know we might only talk once a week but we try and keep that up together up here it's more about trying to get through the process of doing what we have to do with the budget and as y'all you both know the the budget is a long drawn out process as i tell folks we worked on this last budget from december of 2020 until we got it passed in november of 2021 Mm -hmm. and uh for the most part i think most of us that are appropriations chairs or sub appropriations chairs are pretty much burnt out you know we're sort of ready to get out of raleigh and take a break 
so you're in charge over in the farm and I know you got your sons working with you and Rodney goes by science, you go by emotion or gut, but how was that transition going from being this entrepreneur, business owner, farmer to kind of the, the general assembly, which things don't move as fast, even though you are a big chair, you make a lot of decisions. was, was that a hard transition? It was, um, it was sort of difficult. I mean, it still is difficult. Uh, it gets back to what I used to say. I said, well, if I was king, I would do it this way. But actually, I've got to ask 169 other members right. <laughs> how to do it. And so, you know, you learn to cooperate with them. But, uh, and it's just more of a, you know, when I said something at the farm, it, it just got done. Right. You know, I could tell one of the workers, you know, I wanted this done. I didn't have to worry about it. It was done. Yeah. Might not be done that day, but I mean, within a timely manner, it was done. That doesn't quite work that way up here. Right. <laughs> right. So you sort of have to keep uh, following up on things. But, you know, the devil is always in the details. That's and right. I, you know, even though I might have farmed with a gut, and that's probably a better word than emotion. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've always been a detailed oriented person. Yeah, and I so tell. I like to keep the, I like to know what the details say. You have worked on so many pieces of legislation, so many budgets. What is that one piece of legislation that you feel you're the most proud of? Well, you know, I've worked on a seven, probably going on eight farm acts and, mm-hmm. and numerous other farm bills, as well as numerous seven or eight, nine budgets, mm-hmm. you know, as, as, somewhere, as somewhere along the appropriation line. Uh, actually have been involved in probably... 11 of those budgets there's a couple that stands out per se and some of them of course are dealing with agriculture issues and it's trying to to do away with unnecessary regulations mm-hmm. and, and burdensome regulations that just they they look good on paper they sound good in theory they look great up here within the belt line but they are totally useless and impractical on the grounds out in the farm so and there's a lot of those that we have tweaked over the years mm-hmm. The other one is trying to help that someone that can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. That is the most rewarding. And it is, to me, it's about constituency services. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if we can help someone navigate through the agencies, the bureaucracy, and maneuver through that and make it easier, to me, that makes it all worthwhile. Sky and I worked with you on a bill, I think it was 2018, where uh, we're trying to get nutritious farm yep grown food into our public schools and I remember it was I believe in that budget and you gave a great floor speech about how you were surrounded by food every day and you just could not understand that some kids don't have this and we were trying to go into low wealth communities and just get fresh food can you talk a little bit about that 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 is one of the examples uh you know there is no reason there should any child in this state go hungry I mean you know North Carolina is is the third most diversified agricultural state in the nation. We're surrounded by food. Mm-hmm. And there is no reason in my mind through the processes that we can't get that food in a reasonable and efficient way to these children so that they do not go home hungry. And hopefully, you know, we can do even better when they need to in these poverty areas. But that is something I'm very passionate about is, is making sure our children have nutritious food to eat. I jokingly had told folks for years, I says, 
you know, they talk about these food deserts. And they, it took them a while. I'll give uh, Representative Holly Green credit. <laughs> she worked on me a long time about these food deserts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I finally went around and seen some here in mm-hmm. Raleigh. And I, I understood what she was saying. Uh, but I told her, I says, in all reality, I says, I have lived in a food desert all my life and just didn't know it. Wow. Because the closest grocery store is still 10 miles from my home, you know. And so I joked with some of my guys in the office at the time. I said, you know, I'm surrounded by food. I said, but I live in a beer desert. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I got to drive 10 miles from beer. (laughs) But, you know, uh, those things are things that we can do and have an impact that rarely you know and you're not doing it for the glory or yeah. looking for that anyway but you're helping someone that you will never probably even meet yeah and, and to me though those are rewarding experiences and we can do it with the stroke of a pen here in raleigh you work on these farm acts every year and so when people think of farming at the general assembly they generally think of you first there has been some talk that you might run for ag commissioner what do you say to that <laughs> That has been a lifelong goal of mine. Wow. Uh, a long time has been. I remember uh, Commissioner Graham, he and I sat down many years ago and talked about this. And then, you know, I've worked through the commissioners through the, through the ages up into Commissioner Troxler. Uh, but I'm at this point in time, you know, I'm, I'm running for the, you know, in 2022, I'm running for the North Carolina Senate. You won by a landslide on Friday, by the way. Congratulations on well, that. Well, as I said, if I don't die or go to prison <laughs> and I can go vote for myself, I should be okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> but uh, I am leaving all options open okay. at this point in time because there are some folks who approach me about some other offices or either just staying where I'm at. Okay. A follow-up to that. Would yeah. you put a tractor on your um, logo, or would you use a different farm? Uh, <laughs> Sky, I've actually thought about over the years. What okay. would I do after I've seen Commissioner Troxler's tractor? <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'd have to do come up really be really creative to get any better than that to represent a farm. But uh, there's ways to do it. Okay. When we had Representative Jimmy Dixon on, he said that as far as agriculture goes, it wasn't a, a Republican-Democrat thing. It was that if you're a farmer in the General Assembly, and there's you, there's him, there's William Brisson, right. uh, a few others, that there's a big misunderstanding by a lot of folks, including legislators, about where food comes from. Have you found that to be a challenge at, in the Senate when you're talking about this? You know, I don't know if it's because my colleagues, for the most part, uh, knew me or learned my background Uh, i know attorney general josh stein and i had some many good debates early on in my career but but in all fairness josh says i'm gonna just quit on you (laughs) 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 and and, you know we became great friends over of course the years but and enjoyed working with him there is a lot of um, misinformation out there there really is uh we that sort of gets into the rural urban divide yeah and i have this is my take on the rural urban divide rural north carolina has different needs than urban north carolina does but the key is we both need each other right the rural has to feed the urban and the urban has to buy what we grow or we'll not be sustainable 
Mm-hmm. So that's the attitude I've tried to take between this is that we all need to work together. And I think it, for the most part, I'll use this analogy that was given to me a few years ago, several years ago now was most of our members in the General Assembly of the 170 members, they are ag friendly mm-hmm. and they are dedicated to ag. But there's only a handful, and you've named a few. I mean, Representative Dave, former Representative David Lewis was a farmer. Mm-hmm, that's right. You know, and there's a couple more that's been in there. But for a long time, though, I was the only one in the North Carolina Senate. Yeah. You know, yeah. now we have uh, Senator Barnes, who is that's from right. the farm, you that's know. Right. And then you had Senator McInnes, and, you know, but he was in the forestry side of the ag world. But, you know, most legislators are friendly and and dedicated to serving their farmers because most of them have farmers unless they're really in a tight urban district and then you just sort of have to work with them to get them to understand that things are different on the farm or in rural north carolina than they are here in urban but there's a there's a saying i have used many times you know we eat breakfast or most of us do every morning of some sort and you know that chicken is dedicated every morning (laughs) to provide those eggs but that poor pig is committed <laughs> to give us that bacon or sausage. <laughs> so, you know, I've been committed to ag, and, yeah. you know, there's a few of us that are committed, but there's a lot that's, you know, that are there that are friendly to ag and will sit down and listen. And that's one yeah. of the issues I've found is if you can just sit down with another member or anybody in general and just have a conversation, normally you can come to some type of consensus if the consensus is nothing more than to agree to disagree. And move on. Our politics are incredibly partisan right now. If you had a magic wand where you could fix one thing today, what would that one thing be? Well, I don't know that I could say one thing <laughs> other than what I'm fixing to tell you. There's a song, I love beach music, but there's a song that come out last year or in 2020, 2020 after the pandemic started uh, by Lisa Hudson. And uh, it's called What the World Needs is More Love. Mm-hmm. If we could do that, I think we could all sit down and get along fine. I think you're probably right. That's I think you're answer. right. Well, Senator Brent Jackson, we appreciate everything you do for your district, everything you're doing for the state of North Carolina. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast, sir. Well, I really appreciate y'all having me today. And, it, you know, it's been an honor for me to serve in the North Carolina Senate. And, and I take that responsibility seriously. And like I said, I mean, to me, it's all about the constituents, whether they be in my district or whether they be in the western part of the state or the northeastern part of the state. They're a citizen of this state. And I I will end this with this. Normally, when I give someone my business card, and I've probably told y'all this, too, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a North Carolina taxpayer, you paid for it, but it just happens to have my name on it. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. So thank y'all for having me here today. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. This was a fun conversation. I've always had a really soft spot for Senator Jackson. I don't know if that's because my life goal has been to do 
ag policy or food policy mm. and we don't have any food clients but i think it's so interesting and i think he's an interesting guy tweet of the week so we had some trouble finding a tweet of the week this week and that's because we like a funny tweet and it was tough tough week right tough week to find a t- funny tweet i wanted one about maybe duke unc those were all sort of mean-spirited at one another we Saw a lot of tweets about the news this week, but none that were actually that funny. Mm -hmm. So in an act of (laughs) self-promotion, I tweeted, look, I'm happy y'all are working your brains on Wordle, but does Twitter need to know about it every single day? I think not. Right. I play Wordle every day and I have no desire whatsoever to share my Wordle answer or the fact that I got it right with anyone. Yeah, I stand behind that tweet. Like I'm... I'm thrilled that you are doing word games instead of yelling at people on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I stand behind that. However, like it's been a couple months. I don't need to know what letters you guess correctly and how you're smarter than other people. Like it's too much. Yeah. Now there's an answer to this Wordle problem, right? And you yes. got a reply, yes. which will officially make our tweet of the week. It was a it was a good reply. Right. Our tweet of the week is from John Tucker. He's at John Tucker NC. And he said nothing would cause chaos on this app like tweeting out the world answer every morning. And John, that is a great point. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it, John, because I do enjoy playing Wordle. But yeah, it is a great point. Thanks for the tweet of the week. So a couple weeks ago, I made a statement on the podcast that was completely in error. Go ahead. I told you that uh, UNC Greensboro had clinched the Southern Conference and that, uh, you know, they were destined for the NCAAs. Well, that is not true. Tough. So what had happened was I had seen it in my Twitter feed that UNCG had clinched the Southern Conference. Now, what I saw, I, I went, later went back because I wanted to verify, like, you know, what their record was. And I saw that it was a pinned tweet mm. from last year. When All that Wordle still can't make him literate. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently uh, UNCG is not having a good season. They, I think, finished, you know, it was a rebuilding year, as they like to say. Right. Middle of the pack and, and got knocked out in the first round of the Southern Conference tournament and their season is over so they are not going to be meeting they already had their tournament i think so this is tournament week right now tournament week so i think we were in one of the play-in games i don't know was it pretty are you stating further things that aren't true no i'm stating that the season is over it's verified it's confirmed so I am sad to report to you. Well, one, I was wrong. Apologize to all my listeners who were making their bets on UNCG to make it to the national championship. But also, I'm very sad that we will not be facing the Illinois Illini in Fighting Illini. The Fighting Illini. <laughs> Please get it right. Of the Big 14 Conference. I don't want to do this with you again. We've had this discussion like four times this week. Here's our, our little controversy here in the office this week is that the Big Ten Conference, Big Ten, and we always hear about the Big Ten from Sky, but I decided that, you know, I wanted to see who was in the Big Ten Conference, and I counted 14 teams, and 
While I did learn math at Kenansville Elementary School in Duplin County, they taught us to count to 10, and I count 14. So why are you not called the Big 14 Conference? Well, the thing is, I'm not the commissioner of the Big Ten. I don't decide who is in and out. So I don't know why you're attacking me. But it also means that we competed against more teams to be the conference champions this year. Would you say that that is accurate? That is accurate. And I'm not attacking you. There just seems to be a miscount of how many big teams are in the Big Ten Conference. There are four more teams than advertised. It's just called the Big Ten. It it doesn't, it's not called the only ten. <laughs> At least four are losers, so there's only Big Ten. <laughs> We hope that you've enjoyed the weather, the return to the General Assembly, and there has been a lot of news this week. So while digesting and discussing that news with other folks, we hope that you remember to do politics better. Just you use the same four lines all the time, like diversify your jokes. It's not funny the 80th time. But you laugh at them. No, I don't. Me too. I see you laughing. (laughs) I'm laughing at you, not with you. (laughs) 